0: Uh, Hello everyone, thank you for coming. I'm very happy to welcome Alex from LSE who is going to talk to us about Epicurus On Pleasure, The Complete Life and Death, A Defense. Thank you very much and thank you very much for coming this evening. This is not my normal area of work which is in a mix of decision theory and uh, questions of distributive justice both in theory and in practice. But uh, many years ago I had to teach a course, uh, Introduction to Philosophy, the Big Questions. And I thought, what better to start with, with a bunch of uh, uninterested undergraduates, or so I thought, uh, than Epicurus. And so, especially since the texts are short, since, as many of you probably know, we've lost uh, well over 90% of Epicurus's uh, writings. We just have a series of fragments, uh, which meant I couldn't set a lot of reading, which is what the students loved. Uh, and in addition uh, it's full of provocative statements and as I was teaching it I realized that I was myself very dissatisfied with a lot of the secondary literature. I thought many of the authors I came across each had something to say which was correct but the picture that that each of them drew as a whole of Epicurus I found very dissatisfying. So this is an attempt uh, to step outside of my ordinary area of work and try to do uh, some, a mix of what one might call interpretation of Epicurus, as is, I do take some key fragments of his as constraining what I'm trying to put forward, but also to offer a look at uh, an interesting and I think much more attractive and has been appreciated view of the good life. And so in the end... The interest is in constructing a view that draws inspiration from these fragments of Epicurus, but that could, so to speak, stand on its own as an interesting uh, view, and I would say reasonable view, of the good life. Good. So that explains the title, Epicurus on Pleasure, the Complete Life and Death, a Defense. And here's the question that I'd like you to consider at the start. Suppose you learn that this is your final hour, and I've been told I have exactly an hour, so no tea, no tea and cookies for you anymore. That was the last sip. That's right. Enjoy it while it lasts. From now on, it's philosophy until the end of your time. Now, if you... You think it's funny. Uh, (laughs) If you really believed what I was saying, you would not be laughing, I don't think. Perhaps you would, but I wouldn't. I would be gripped uh, with terror, and Epicurus supposes so would most of you, with fear. But he says famously in a letter to a fellow Epicurean, Minusius, accustom yourself to the belief that death is nothing to us. For all good and evil lie in sensation, whereas death is the absence of sensation." Now this looks like an argument, and it has been understood as an argument. But if you read it, I doubt that you would be immediately convinced. Right? And so for more than 2,000 years, this lack of conviction has been carried by many commentators and philosophers. My aim today is to say that um, there's actually a substantial and very interesting view of the good life here in Epicurus's writing, not just in this fragment, and that um, if you came to adopt his view of the good life, indeed, it would be true that death would be nothing to you. So that's the aim of the lecture. Now, before then, we have to rid ourselves of some standard interpretations, which I think get in the way of seeing what Epicurus uh, might have meant, or I think uh, probably did mean, but at least in the way of understanding an interesting Epicurean view. So I'm going to start by giving you some standard criticisms of the argument as it's normally understood, and then we'll try to answer those criticisms. So here's one way, at least in philosophy 101, that the uh, argument is commonly understood. First, a premise, a hedonistic premise. Pleasure is the only intrinsic good. Pain, the only intrinsic evil. By intrinsic, of course, I mean good in and of itself, or bad in and of itself here, not for its further effects. Secondly, the assumption that death is the end of all sensation. And that assumption we will be granting epicurus what i've got here in bronze may be challenged later on and then the idea is from this fragment there's a therefore death is nothing to us so that's a standard rendition of the argument and an argument of this kind is often attacked in two places firstly the hedonistic premises attacked and secondly the inference is attacked so i'll give you a sense of both types of attack. So Aristotle, of course not criticizing Epicurus because he wrote before Epicurus, but criticizing hedonism, says the following thing. The most vulgar would seem to conceive of happiness as pleasure, and hence they also like the life of gratification. The life they decide on is a life for grazing animals. The essence of the criticism here is that Hedonism fails to meet one of Aristotle's desiderata for the good life, which is it has to be a good life for the type of beings that we are, rational beings. What the good life is for us should not be the very same as what the good life is for a grazing animal, for a non-rational animal. It has to involve, essentially, the use of our theoretical and practical reason, that's to say, our ability to figure out things about the world, and... Uh, our ability to uh, decide on how to live and to discipline our feelings, our emotions, our desires to align with what we take the good life to be. None of those is what a grazing animal is capable of. So insofar as hedonism just is the gratification of whatever desires you have with the aim of getting pleasure, then hedonism cannot be the good life for human beings. So that's rejecting the first premise. Secondly, there's the idea that even if we were to grant the first premise, even if we all were to accept the truth of hedonism, the conclusion wouldn't follow. And this is present, for example, in Nagel's famous article on death, but also in some interpreters like Gisela Stryker um, in Long and Sedley, who have a wonderful collection of um, Epicurean and Stoic works in translation and wonderful commentary, and also Bernard Williams, they also say, look, the conclusion simply doesn't follow here. Why? If pleasure is good, if the enjoyment you would have from the cup of tea after this lecture is good, but you're robbed of it by the fact that your life will end before you get to drink it, then your life will contain less pleasure. Your death will not be intrinsically bad for you, but it will be a comparative bad for you because had you not died, you would have gone on to experience more pleasure. So the idea is death can be a comparative evil when it prevents more pleasurable time alive. It might also be a comparative good if it prevents you from more time alive while suffering, right? That's also a familiar thought. So it definitely doesn't follow the argument. It runs from hedonism that death is nothing to us. And here's a way that Bernard Williams puts it, consider two lives, one very short and the other containing enjoyment to a ripe age. If the good things in life are valuable, the more of them, then more of them is better than less. But then it will just not be true that to die earlier is all the same as to die later. Good. So in the rest of this talk, I will try to answer both Aristotle's objection and the invalidity objection. So let's start with Aristotle's objection, which is to recall that the life of pleasure is not fit for a rational being. It's simply the life of mindless gratification. Well, what does Epicurus say about pleasure? He says, what produces the pleasant life is not continuous drinking and parties, or something I've had to censor in polite company, or womanizing, or the enjoyment of dishes of an expensive table, (coughs) but sober reasoning. So that's a relief to all of you. You're now engaged, as long as you're thinking along with me, in something that produces the greatest pleasure. Right? No need to regret that you're spending your last hour here and not in an orgy. Here's another thing he says, refer every choice to the health of the body and the soul's freedom from disturbance, or tranquility, as it's often translated. And finally, perhaps even most provocatively, the removal of all pain, by which he means physical and mental pain, is the limit of the magnitude of pleasures. Now, how will this help us answer Aristotle's objection? Well, there's an idea here that reasoning is definitely involved, right? So it's not simply the life of mindless gratification. But at the same time, quotes like these, have simply seemed to create even more problem for the Epicureans. So here's what some commentators, ancient and modern, had to say in reference to fragments like this. The Cyrenaics, which were a rival school of hedonists, who uh, roughly had the idea, that's Aristippus over there, um, who roughly had the idea that, yes, pleasure is the only good, pain the only evil, and the way to maximize pleasure was to really, really, really want something and then get it. So starve yourself, and then have one hell of a feast. Right? Uh, really desire someone, and then finally manage to seduce them, etc. Uh, now, it's reported that the Cyrenaics said about Epicurus, if your idea of pleasure is the removal of all pain, well, that's already the condition of a corpse. So no wonder, right? no wonder you think that death is nothing to you. However, to us, death would be a bad thing because we it would stop us from indulging in these intense pleasures. Uh, perhaps the reason that we have to rely on the church father, Clement of Alexandria, to report what they said is that they were too busy uh, enjoying themselves to write it all down. Uh, allegedly, Aristippus himself never wrote anything down. Here's what Cicero says about the quotation, the limit of pleasure is reached uh, when at the removal of all mental and bodily pain. He said, well, this is just an outright contradiction. And finally, Julia Annas, in a paper on Epicurus and the Good Life, says this is really nobody's idea of how to maximize pleasure. Now, can we make sense of Epicurus's view as expressed in these fragments? That's what I'll now try to do. Let's start by trying by this with this idea of tranquility what would it take for you to be free from all forms of mental anguish well think of it this way if you were to believe and the same would go for an epicurean that uh, significant evils awaited you and that they were or that they were quite likely to happen right then you would be anxious So that's a pretty straightforward idea. You think it's pretty likely, or at least more than some threshold likelihood of something significantly bad befalling you, then that will cause you anxiety. So we can conclude that if you're free from anxiety, if you're free from this form of mental anguish, then the Epicureans at least, but I think the same is true of all of us, they do not believe that they're vulnerable in this way. I'm using vulnerability here as the idea, so I do not believe I'm vulnerable when I do not believe it's substantially likely, so above some threshold of likelihood, that I will suffer some substantial harm. Okay. So it doesn't mean complete invulnerability. I don't have to be the man of steel without any kryptonite around. Right? Uh, it's just that I think Nothing very substantial is likely to affect me. Now, we've now got a connection between absence of distress and not believing that you're vulnerable. Of course, there are two ways in which you could not believe that you're vulnerable. One is you simply have no beliefs about the matter, or you suspend belief. But that's not the path that the Epicureans are taking. In fact, they uh, debate and uh, extensively discuss investigate the conditions of human vulnerability and how we can become less vulnerable. So they don't suspend belief on the matter. Instead, they form beliefs about their vulnerability. And so we can conclude that a tranquil Epicurean, one who is not experiencing mental anguish or distress, must (coughs) believe that they are not vulnerable in the sense I've been outlining. Okay, so now we have a connection between tranquility and a sense of invulnerability. This idea is not new. There's a wonderful book by Philip Mitzis called The Pleasures of Invulnerability, um, where I got a lot of this uh, idea, but it is interesting to see now whether once we've made this link between tranquility and a sense of invulnerability, whether we can begin to understand the pleasures of involved in this state of freedom of pain. But first, We should ask how we can achieve justified belief in our invulnerability. What would it involve for an Epicurean? Well here we can observe that a lot of what Epicurus talks about when he discusses people's sense of vulnerability is that they will feel vulnerable when They believe that a strongly held desire, an important desire, uh, may be frustrated. So imagine the thing that is your heart's desire, right? Now imagine that you will not see that desire satisfied. Instead, you will see it frustrated. This should cause you anxiety. That will be perceived as an evil. The way we can limit our vulnerability on the Epicurean view is just to limit our desires and, Epicurus believes, eliminate some false beliefs which are at the root of some of these desires. So let's look at the Epicurean typology of desire, and here I'm relying on um, a nice chapter in Nussbaum's The Therapy of Desire. Epicurus distinguishes three types of desires. The first he calls natural and necessary. These are the things that you need for uh, bodily and mental well-being, to be without bodily and mental pain. So you need water, food, uh, shelter, clothing, and though it's not on this thing, that friendly little guy there is meant to represent friendship as well. So for Epicurus, you also need, beyond these basic physical needs, you need friendship. You need uh, people around you who love you and with whom you can live happily, a social life, and do philosophy together. Good. So these things you ought not to try to rid yourself of desires for. These are proper desires. But, Epicurus says, fortunately, they really are just for the basics in life. And it's quite straightforward to arrange your life, both in economic and social terms, at least if you're reasonably fortunate, so that... These, can you can be relatively sure that these will be secured. He also says there are some natural and unnecessary desires. And it's more obscure exactly what these involve, but uh, as I was thinking about Epicurus, I watched a Durex commercial on TV, which gave me some insight. Okay, So have any of you seen the Durex series Protect Yourself? Okay, so... A father, in this one, it's a whole series of, of, of fathers having a difficult time with their kids. So this dad is trying to have a barbecue. It's the perfect day for a barbecue. He's getting the barbie ready. He's put the steaks on. Kids are playing in the garden with a hose, and they ruin the barbecue, basically. He tries you know to get it back going again. And just at the moment when he's ready to flip the steak, his son runs around, beats him around the head with a plastic sword. That's the little bit you have there. And at that moment of supreme frustration, the Durex logo appears and it says, protect yourself. So the idea is, if you have children, it's natural that you will care about them, and it's natural that they will cause you anxiety and frustration. This is not based on a false belief or anything of that kind, but it's an unnecessary desire because you can protect yourself. You can simply not have children. So it's possible to avoid the desire or to leave unfulfilled without danger to well-being. Finally, there are the empty desires. These are based on false beliefs about the nature of the world and or the nature of the good. So one prime example is, of course, Epicurus's, uh, the myths that people uh, may or may not have believed at the time of uh, eternal life in Hades after death Right? Uh, Achilles' ghost comes back to, sell, to tell Ulysses that life in the uh, underworld is worse than the life of a slave in our world, right? so it's not, nothing to look forward to now if you believe that you will go to hell after dying there's Hades on his throne and Cerberus in the picture <clears throat> if you believe that you will go to hell that gives you a very strong reason to want your life to last as long as possible and to fear death. But once you realize, as Epicurus says, through the practice of natural philosophy, that there is no afterlife, that we simply fall apart, the atoms that that make us fall apart on our death, you will be rid of that empty desire. Now, I think we need to say a little bit more than just confine yourself to natural necessary desires. There's an interesting distinction in... Uh, Bernard Williams famous paper that I quoted a passage from before uh, the Mercopolis case on the desire for immortality in which Williams draws a distinction between categorical desires and what uh, what he calls merely conditional desires so what are what's this distinction a categorical desire would have the following form that's me with my friends this past summer climbing Mount Olympus we made it to the top and one of my friends turned out to have a bottle of champagne in his backpack it was such a show off. Uh, so we're enjoying, <laughs> we're, we're enjoying this at the top of Mount Olympus, like the, uh, like the gods in the background picture of my opening slide. right? Now, suppose in the year before, when, I, when we were planning this trip, I had the following attitude towards this trip. I want to be alive next summer in order to climb Mount Olympus with my friends. That would be a categorical desire. That would be frustrated by my death. It would be frustrated by spending the summer in Blackpool as well, instead of on Mount Olympus. So things in the world could frustrate it, but my death could also frustrate it. But I could also have the following merely conditional desire towards this trip. I could have said, if I'm alive next year, then I want to spend time with my friends. But it's not the case that I want to be alive next year in order to enjoy their company, so to speak. This uh, desire is merely conditional on my being alive. It would be frustrated if I didn't go on the trip with them while I'm around. It's not frustrated by my death, because the condition would then simply, the condition would simply not be satisfied. And this is something that Stephen Looper, in an interesting article, emphasizes. He says an Epicurean will have to conditionalize many of his or her desires. Their future oriented desires, and especially, I would say, the desires which are natural and necessary, so for things like spending time with your friends, food, shelter, etc., would have to be purely conditionalized. That's to say, I don't. Uh, want to be alive next year, that would be a categorical desire, to taste the pleasures of my friend's company. But if I'm alive next year, I want to be in the company of my friends. So here's what I think Epicurus tells us to do in relation to our desires in order to achieve the form of invulnerability I outlined earlier. Limit yourself to desires which cannot be frustrated by death, and which are unlikely to be frustrated otherwise. Remember that, ca- that even merely conditional desires can be frustrated by the world, right? If I said, if I'm around next year, I want to spend it all summer in uh, splurging in the Savoy in Paris, right? That is likely to be frustrated because uh, if I'm around, I won't have the money to pay for that, right? But if I have much more modest desires, if I've limited myself to the natural and necessary ones, then I can be, and I've chosen wisely my social and economic circumstances, and perhaps I'm modestly fortunate, then I can be quite certain that these will be satisfied. And that will make you feel justifiably invulnerable, because your vulnerability, the primary source of vulnerability, comes from The idea that important central desires will be frustrated or are likely to be frustrated and they will not be likely to be frustrated neither by death nor by your circumstances. So here's where you end up. A garden on the edge of Athens right where he invited his followers to join, to live simply and enjoy the pleasures of each other's company. And it's very important here that those who you are with in this garden are fellow Epicureans. That's to say, people who are devoted to the same type of simple living and rendering themselves invulnerable as you are. Because Epicurus says you will naturally care about your friends as much as you care about yourself. That's what it is, that attitude, uh, loving others, is involved in friendship. But of course, if you love others who are (laughs) vulnerable, anxious beings, right? Then you yourself, through your love of them, will become vulnerable. So that's why not being at the center of things, but rather on the edge of town in the garden, as he called his hippie commune, as I guess we should call it, um, is the place where you need to go. Okay, so now we've understood tranquility as linked to a sense of invulnerability, and we have a sense of what's required in order to become invulnerable. But why is this a pleasurable state? We still haven't answered uh, Cicero's and the Cyrenaics and Julia Annas' objection that this is no one's idea of how to maximize pleasure. Well, first observation, and that's Philip Mitz's from this book, The Pleasures of Invulnerability, is that you will feel safe. You will feel in control of your life because you have rendered yourself safe from uh, a variety of uh, threats to your well-being. And because all your preferences, all your central desires will be satisfied or at the very least not thwarted, you can have a sense of contentment. So, When you're tranquil through achieving justified belief in your invulnerability, you will taste the pleasures of feeling safe, in control, and content. But there's more than just this. Gisela Stryker points out that if you are in a tranquil state, if you're feeling invulnerable, you can open yourself up to any of the fleeting pleasures of the moment. If you have a nice conversation when you're in a tranquil state, you will enjoy the conversation maximally. If you have a nice piece of cheese, and I mention cheese because uh, one of the ironies of history is that we have lost much of Epicurus' writings but not a shopping list, on which he asks, we have a letter to his mother and a shopping list, on which he asks for a friend to bring him a nice pot of cheese so that he can have a feast. Okay, so there you are, you're a tranquil Epicurean, and you get your nice pot of cheese. You will be maximally open to enjoying this cheese. The cheese will hardly be more enjoyable than it will be at that moment. Right. The same goes basically for any thought or perceptual experience. You'll be open to it precisely because you feel tranquil and invulnerable. The next pleasure that you can taste is one of comparison. And Hume, in the treatise, calls this uh, Contrary to the pleasures of sympathy. So sympathy is when you're feeling uh, low, right? That depresses my feeling. Comparison is when you're feeling low, I think, well, at least I'm not as badly off as you are. (laughs) The comparison of yourself with another person or a previous version of yourself, if you've come through a very difficult time, and you say, oh, thank God, that is over, right? I'm no longer anxious or in pain. That is also a pleasure of comparison with your previous self. Now, in the fragments we have of Epicurus, it's that comparison with your previous anxious self before you went through the Epicurean disciplining of your desires and giving up on false beliefs that, Epicurus says, gives you pleasure. The limited pleasure in the mind is produced by reflecting on things which used to present the mind with its greatest fears. But Lucretius makes it other-oriented, a follower of Epicurus. So this is what he says. When winds are troubling the sea, it's a pleasure to view from land another man's great struggles because it's a pleasure to observe from what trouble you are free. Don't laugh. You know, we're all like this. And he says, pleasantest of all, is to be master of tranquil tranquil regions fortified by the teachings of the wise. From there, you can look down on others. So you have the pleasure of comparing yourself, not merely to your previous anxious self, before you retired to the garden with fellow Epicureans, but also with all the anxious, uh, pained people around you outside of the garden. Finally, there's the pleasure of pride. Pride because it's a great achievement to become, to render yourself invulnerable and become tranquil. So here's what Epicurus says about pride. Natural philosophy makes people self-sufficient because they've rendered themselves as invulnerable as we can be to fortune and proud at their own goods, not at their circumstances. Or as he says... Elsewhere, what what is this great achievement? The great achievement is to conquer, make yourself invulnerable to fortune. So there's a medieval uh, painting of fortune. There's the wheel of fortune. Here's a man on the up. There he is, thinking himself king of the world. Then the wheel turns, and things get quickly worse again. This is what Epicurus says about fortune. I have anticipated you, fortune, and have barred your means of entry. We shall depart from life, declaring in a song of triumph how well we have lived. This is a triumph over fortune. Maximal control over the goodness of your life. So here are the pleasures of invulnerability, the pleasures of the tranquil state. Feeling safe in control and content. The pleasures of everyday unperturbed perception and thought. um, Of comparison with your previous self or with others who are less tranquil than you and of pride at your achievement. Now we still have to then answer so this I think answers the Cyrenaics and Cicero's claim that this is either the condition of a corpse or just a complete contradiction. These are pleasures very distinct from the condition of a corpse. We still have to answer Julia Anassa's question whether these are the greatest pleasures. Well Here, I think it's worth considering the idea that, as many commentators, going back to at least Mill, uh, have pointed out, pleasure isn't a single thing. There is no simple quantity or intensity of pleasure, uh, which is, say, one on a scale from one to ten when you're sipping a cup of tea, uh, two when you're having a cookie with it, and nine when you're making love to someone who you strongly desire. Right? Uh, these are simply different in quality, these different experiences, and cannot simply be captured by a single metric, as much as my colleagues at the LSE try to do so, right? They have, um, if you were enrolled in one of their experiments, every 30 minutes, so right about now, you would be getting a text message and say, please rate the quality of your affect, that is your conscious mental experience, on a scale from one to six. Um, So I'm hoping we're at least at a three. (laughs) Um, If one denies that pleasures can simply be valued on a scale of their momentary intensity, like this, then as Mill knew, there's a whole... different sets of ways in which we can evaluate different types of pleasures, the pleasure of a philosophical conversation, the pleasure of pride in one's achievement with the pleasure of some uh, intense gratification. Once we recognize that there's a type of value judgment here, I think it's open to us, and I think that Epicurus uh, probably had this in mind, to say that these pleasures, the pleasures involved in the tranquil state, are the greatest, that's to say, the most worthwhile set of pleasures. Why? Because they are produced in a state that has the potential to last, and not merely to last due to luck, but last due to the exercise of theoretical and practical reason. You achieve this state, and you maintain it by doing philosophy by figuring out that the world is not the way religions and the myths and society around you tell you the way it is, but that we simply cease to be at our death. And by doing, so to speak, reasoning about the good life, about how to achieve it, and disciplining your desires. So what makes this the greatest or most worthwhile set of pleasures is that it's produced precisely in a way that Aristotle thought that the life of pleasure was not produced, namely through the exercise of theoretical and practical reason. So I think that answers, or at least that's my attempted answer on Epicurus's behalf, Aristotle's objection. Now what about the invalidity objection, the idea that, yeah, sure, grant you that this, these pleasures of invulnerability are the greatest pleasures. Wouldn't you want to stick around longer? There you are, invulnerable. Isn't it great to have another day, uh, another year, another 60 years of leading the life of invulnerability and tasting its attendant pleasures? Epicurus did consider this, I think, and this fragment indicates uh, that he had in mind a way of answering that uh, charge. He says, the flesh places the limits of pleasure at infinity and needs an infinite time. What he has in mind here with the flesh, I think, is just, again, the ordinary Greek idea of what is the best possible life? What's the life of the gods? Endless partying on the Olympus. Basically, they're immortal. It goes on forever. So you need infinite time for the best possible life because it will contain the maximum amount of pleasure. But he says the intellect brings about the complete life so that when circumstances bring about our departure, it does not suppose that it has fallen short of the best life. Here, I think he clearly has in mind the idea that death, at least for the person of intellect, should not be a comparative evil because one's life is complete. But this just seems puzzling, right? Because here we have a claim Pleasure is always good when it comes. He clearly endorses that. The most pleasurable state is to be in the tranquil state, but more of it doesn't make your life any more complete, any better. That has seemed to many people quite paradoxical. So here, for example, is Cicero again. The one who thinks that a life is made complete by pleasure, how can he be consistent if he denies that pleasure increases by duration? And here, again, is a contemporary uh, author, Gisela Stryker, who before I appealed to because I think she has a very interesting idea about um, the pleasures that are attendant on the tranquil state, namely that you're open to every day so that uh, the pleasures of thought, perception, etc. will be maximized. She nonetheless says, on the most plausible interpretation of the quote you just saw, Epicurus means by this a completely pleasant life Obviously, the inference from complete pleasure to the complete life, if intended, would be fallacious okay, so she interprets this quote as not being about the complete life but some state of you know maximal pleasure what we already saw before. I just think this is inconceivable right? the phrase itself is complete life, but anyway, so this has seemed so perplexing to commentators from Cicero through to the present that They thought Epicurus must just be making some kind of mistake here or he's not really talking about the complete life. He's just rehashing what we just heard about pleasure in the maximal pleasure. But I think with the idea of tranquility in hand, we can answer the objection of Cicero and Stryker. We've already seen that the greatest pleasures are attained in the tranquil state, or at least that's what Epicurus believes and there's some plausibility to it. Now how do you become tranquil? Well, we saw that that is when you have no strong future-oriented desires that can be thwarted by death, otherwise you wouldn't be tranquil because you would be afraid that death would thwart a central desire. That means that the attitude of someone in the tranquil state is to desire more time in the tranquil state only conditionally. Just as I was discussing, I might desire more time with my friends only conditionally. If I'm around, I would like to be in the company of my friends. That is the way the the tranquil Epicurean must, by necessity think of their future. They will say, if I'm around tomorrow, I would like to be in the tranquil state. That is why another day, another pleasurable day, is good when it comes. But it doesn't make my life better because, as a whole, I believe it's only conditionally valuable, not categorically valuable. So one way of putting it is, they must regard their life as complete. If they did not regard their life as complete, they would have a categorical desire to continue living, and they would be anxious about the fact that death might stop them from satisfying that categorical desire. So once we understand the Epicurean view of pleasure, I think it's quite easy to see how, at least from the inside, of a tranquil person, their attitude towards the future is one in which they must regard their life as complete from the moment they attained tranquility. So the Epicurean view of the best life is this one. Achieve tranquility and remain tranquil until death. It's quite important here that if you have not yet achieved tranquility, you will have a categorical desire. So if none of us here are tranquil, this view of the good life would rec- could recommend to you, if we think we're capable of becoming tranquil, aim for tranquility because that will mean that you've attained the best possible life, a life of mastery over fortune, mastery over your desires, openness to all the pleasures of the everyday. But once you've attained tranquility, you will regard yourself as having reached the peak of a large mountain, right? Which was your purpose to attain. More time at the peak would be wonderful if it comes, but it doesn't make your life as a whole any better because the purpose was to attain the peak and not go down. Well, one way of not going down is simply dying at the top. So that gets us now to trying to answer the argument of invalidity. These were the two premises we started with, which are usually attributed to Epicurus on the basis of the letter to Minusius, and I've not disputed them. I've only tried to explain more about the content of pleasure for Epicurus, right? So pleasure is the only intrinsic good, pain the only intrinsic evil. Death is the end of all sensation. It follows death is not intrinsically bad. That does follow. Now we add this, which is what I've been arguing for throughout the talk the best life is one in which one has achieved tranquility and remains tranquil until one's death. It follows that for the tranquil, death is not comparatively bad because their life is already complete. And now we have a valid argument to the following conclusion. Death is nothing bad to us. Who is us? In the original version of the argument, as rendered by... Williams, Nagel, and many others, us somehow is meant to be everyone, any person. On this interpretation, it's only about the tranquil. Remember, it comes from a letter from Epicurus to another Epicurean. The us is not us. The us is us Epicureans. So that, I think, is my, well, that's my attempt anyway to show how there's a um, valid argument. And also, along the way, that there's some um, interest in the conception of pleasure and of the good life. Now, uh, in the time, I still have some time, right? In the time remaining, let's, oh, I should first say a few other things. How does this differ from other interpretations? I've indicated along the way, but it be useful to put it out there. As I mentioned, along the way, I've made use of ideas from Williams, from Looper, from Stryker, from uh, Nussbaum, etc. So this is not So to speak, everything tried to construct from nothing. But what's interesting is that none of these interpreters, as I see it, has seen the whole of the argument as I've tried to present it today. So here, for example, Stephen Looper, who emphasizes the role of conditionalizing desires in order to achieve tranquility, and I think he's right about that, then also makes the following claim about the Epicurean view of the good life, namely that there is none. So since Epicureans cannot allow themselves any motivation to live, that's to say no categorical desires, he believes, they must ensure that they never think that it would be good to live. A conception of a good or worthwhile life is a description of a life that would be good to live, such a conception Epicureans completely lack. Now, I've just explained why I think this is false. An Epicurean would say to all of us, I'm assuming none of you are tranquil, right? here's a good life for you to lead, The one just described, make yourself tranquil through the exercise of philosophy, discipline, and by going to live somewhere far from central London where life is cheap, right? And the uh, basic necessities are easily found, and you can find some nice people around you, unlike here. That is a view of the good life, and someone who fails to attain it has failed to lead the best life for human beings. And you ought to have at least one categorical desire as an Epicurean, namely that. So I think on this point, Looper is mistaken. And here, Gisela Stryker says, in the same piece where I did borrow some insights from, one should expect Epicurus to agree that a long life of pleasure is better than a short one. The claim that Epicureans will lead their lives untroubled by ordinary apprehensions of death is a hoax. I hope to have indicated why I think this is also a mistake. right? And she tries to bolster this by the idea that how could an Epicurean say that the death of an 18-year-old is not a tragedy if instead that 18-year-old would have gone on to lead a life of up to 80 years uh, in an Epicurean hippie commune. Right? Well, it's also clear, I hope from the way I've spelled it out, that on the view I'm attributing to Epicurus, or an Epicurean view, that would be a tragedy to die at 18 if the alternative was to become an Epicurean sage and live with your friends in the garden. Right? Because dying at 18 before you've attained the maturity to appreciate his philosophy and to master your desires would mean that you had not la- led the best possible life. Okay. So, I've argued so far that there's an interesting view of pleasure here, which is fit for human beings, so contrary to Aristotle's argument, and that the argument is coherent. But for all of us non Epicureans, should we take this as a recommendation? Should we adopt this view of the good life? <clears throat> well, one way of thinking about this is to go through Aristotle's conditions on the good life, which he articulates in the Nicomachean Ethics. There are other ways of approaching this question as well. Um, But let's go with the master. So here we've already seen that it meets his condition. His first condition is that whatever the good life is for human beings, it has to be typically human. And for Aristotle that meant involving the use of practical and theoretical reason. And yes, it does do so. Secondly, Aristotle says, we can't expect it to be fully within our control, but it's good if it's maximally within our control. It's interesting whether one ought to accept this as a condition, maximally within our control. I'm not fully convinced, but there is something, other thi- keeping other things equal, the more control you have over the good life, the better. Right? And you might even think, as some of my students pointed out to me when I was questioning this in seminars with them, that there's a conceptual connection between recommending a life as a good one, which has to be one that you pursue and choose, and the idea that it's not entirely up to fate, right? That there must be at least some control, because otherwise it's pointless to aim to pursue it if it's all just up to fate and not at all due to your own actions and thoughts. And you might also say the more it's within your control, the more autonomous you are, the more self-made you are, the more your life's narrative is your own. So there's some reasons to value this. And of course, the Epicurean life as outlined does meet that condition. Another condition is that the good life as described should be desired for its own sake and not for the sake of anything else. So uh, here, the pleasurable or tranquil life is, I would say, valuable in and of itself. At least if you accept the idea that there are these various pleasures, and moreover, that, it's a, that these are pleasures that are produced to the exercise through an achievement of practical and theoretical reason, you can say, well, it's desirable in and of itself just in the way um, the challenge of climbing a great mountain, right, is something which one could, and doing so successfully, is something which one could uh, desire for its own sake and not for anything further. Final condition. <clears throat> all by itself, it makes a life choice worthy, by which I, I take Aristotle to mean um, better than not living at all, right? So something you would gladly, perhaps, with gladness choose, uh, definitely over a life of never have or uh, of never having been, and lacking nothing. That is to say, there's nothing in this life which Uh, you think, needs to be added to it in order to make it a good life. And here is where the rub might be in the Epicurean life. Aristotle emphasizes lacking nothing, not merely, so to speak, from the person considered alone, but also in relation to others in terms of that person being a good citizen, a good friend, a good partner. So that's where I put the question mark. So far, we haven't really focused on what such a life might lack especially in terms of one's relations to others. And one question you might raise, and which has been raised by many commentators, including Stephen Looper, um, who puts it very vividly, is it compatible with love, with genuine concern for another person? And there's my friends again on top of uh, Mount Olympus, right? Now, many have thought, look, this search for tranquility is just so self Obsessed, really, so such an e- extreme form of self concern that it's not compatible with loving other people, with caring about them for their own sake. On the other hand, the fragments we have of Epicurus and then later retellings of the Epicurean view, for example, in Cicero, uh, where I have this quote from, emphasize the importance of friendship and also loving a friend as you love yourself. So, one of the fragments I didn't put up here is Uh, Epicurus says if a friend were to be tortured it would pain you just as much it would pain the wise man just as much as if he were were being tortured himself okay and also that such love um, is a necessary ingredient of friendship and friendship is a necessary ingredient of the good life so here's one way of putting it without friendship we are quite unable to secure joy nor can we preserve friendship unless we love our friends as ourselves so Is the Epicurean view compatible with friendship? I think it is. But only if your friends are Epicureans who have made themselves invulnerable and live with you in the garden. Because if you love them like you love yourself and you want to remain invulnerable, not be made anxious by them, you must believe that they, like you, are invulnerable to any significant evil. So yes, you can love wholeheartedly, but only fellow Epicureans. Because suppose that your friend whom you love dies. Should you regret on his behalf his passing? No, because his life was complete. You might think, well, this is very, then at least you must be sad on your own behalf. That's where Epicurus engages in maybe some wishful thinking, but... His recommendation is you must focus on the good times you had with them and anyway there will be plenty of of other Epicurean friends for you to philosophize with and spend your time with. But you shouldn't be sad on their behalf because of course their life was complete. So there's a decent case, perhaps not a watertight case to be made, that friendship is compatible with Epicureanism, genuine other concern, but selective only for those people who've made themselves invulnerable. So that means that dependent children, remember the Durex commercial, right, protect yourself, right? Dependent children, basically non-Epicurean partners and friends, anyone who is going to make you anxious because they have not made themselves invulnerable, right, are ruled out. You really must cut yourself off in terms of strong bonds of sympathy with everyone outside of the Epicurean hippie commune. And then that, of course, seems the rub, right? Um, If I ask myself, suppose that I were persuaded that the pleasures of invulnerability were really worth having and I wanted also to be rid of my, I can confess, quite considerable anxieties, uh, especially in relation to death, right? Would I be willing to pay the price of really cutting myself off from... Most of my anxiety inducing friends and family, right, and colleagues and students for that matter. Well, George Orwell, uh, I got the quote from Suzanne, who's here who this evening, a colleague, who, when we were discussing this, sent this to me, said, says otherwise, right, the essence of being human is that one is prepared to be broken up by life, which is the inevitable price of fastening one's love upon other human beings. Now, Epicurus wouldn't quite agree, he wouldn't say it's inevitable. This would be correct on Epicurus' view, inevitable price of fasting one's love upon non-Epicurean beings. Right? <laughs> then he would agree, at least with the second part of the card. He wouldn't agree with the first, but I'm inclined, at least from within a life already filled with such attachments, to accept Orwell's view. So the idea is that foregoing such love, and not merely love, I focus on love, but anything else that could render you vulnerable. So. What one might call any categorical project, a project which you believe are really deeply committed to and want to see through to its completion, right A book manuscript, um, a uh, trip around the world, etc, would make you vulnerable to death and therefore rob you of the pleasures of invulnerability. OK, so let me sum up. <coughs> I've tried to argue on the positive side and contrary to 2,000 plus years of detractors that the Epicurean life is pleasurable, it's fit for a rational being, it's compatible with a form of friendship, and indeed, if you were to live it, you would render death harmless. So um, many of the things that throughout history have been said about Epicureans seem, at least on this interpretation to me, to be wrong. However, uh, and this is also something correctly observed by Stephen Looper, um, it requires withdrawal from love of all non-Epicureans and from all categorical projects. And this may seem a very high price to pay. Um, Once we realize that the price of love and such projects is just the fear of death, perhaps we can flip the Epicurean move on its head, right? So Epicurus says, you are so anxious about death, I can remove the fear of death if you follow my philosophy. Maybe once we realize that the price of following his philosophy is so high, giving up on love of vulnerable others and on all categorical projects, we can, rather than try to rid ourselves of uh, the anxiety and fear surrounding death, simply come to accept it, so that's my final slide. If we're convinced that the price that, of entry to Epicurus's garden is uh, too high, right, that staying outside <coughs> to remain committed to vulnerable others and projects, then we may simply accept that we should come to terms with our uh, fear about death rather than try to rid ourselves of it. Thanks.